0: Hello, this is Stephanie.
1: And this is Brian.
0: Welcome to our podcast, The Making and the Remaking of a Codependent Mind.
1: This episode is going to be part two of what we started in the previous episode.
0: Right. So last episode, we started on Brian's 12 steps, which is your attempt to codify the 12 steps that you took to address your codependency and change the codependent behaviors that have become habitual for you.
1: So if you're listening to this one first, I would recommend you go back to that episode and listen to that one first because we covered the first five of those steps, as well as discussed what we the problems we found with the original 12 steps being AA or CODA. So these steps are really not meant to be like, do these steps in this order or anything. It's kind of just an inspiration for anyone listening on like how they can use this as an idea for their own reprogramming.
0: Exactly. So like you said, we're going to be covering steps 6 through 12 in this episode. And again, it was season 3, episode 12 where we did the first the first five steps. Before we get to the the next six steps though, I just wanted to say something that we usually say at the end of the podcast when I don't know how many people listen to the very end <laughs> of the right. podcast. So uh, we just want to mention how grateful we are that when people reach out to us and give us feedback um, we're also very grateful. Even just uh, a like or a follow or a review on the podcast platform that you listen on, it helps other people find the show as well, which we're grateful for. But let's dive into steps six through 12. Did you want to read yeah. one through five first? I guess we
1: might as well just read the steps really quickly just to kind of get ourselves going down the path. Okay. So they are one, I admitted that I was powerful, that my life could be manageable. Two, I came to believe that human interpersonal relationships are a core feature of an enriching life experience, and that my habitual codependent behaviors were holding me back from having that experience. Three, I made a decision to listen to what my emotions are telling me, and to understand the ways in which I had been avoiding or bearing those emotions. Four, I made a searching and fearless inventory of all the relationships in my life, past and present what effect those people's behaviors had on me and the effects my behaviors have had on those people. And then five, I admitted to another human being that I value and trust the exact nature of those behaviors and relationships to the best of my ability.
0: So those are the first five. We're going to put all 12 in the show notes, but let's move on to six.
1: Number six. So number six is I was entirely ready to face the shame and fear that I had been bearing or avoiding asking for help from others when necessary.
0: I'm going to um, quote Freud here, and we should have been reading Freud all along because it's a bunch of great quotations Uh from Freud, which makes sense because he really introduced a number of key concepts, key psychological concepts that we've been talking about, disassociation, Repression, compartmentalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one kind of has to do with compartmentalization or or repression. It's unexpressed emotions will never die. They will come back forth in uglier ways. So you were carrying all this shame and fear right back since your childhood. And as we've talked about over the, the course of these episodes of this podcast, you kept adding to that shame and fear bucket ball we talked about it in a number of kind of physical right. <laughs> metaphors that just got added to as you went through your life especially when you were in those abusive relationships and that shame and fear didn't go away right. and it would present itself in these codependent behaviors
1: yeah it's this constant game of kind of reshuffling these mm-hmm. memories and thoughts into different compartments as we say mm-hmm. um, because I didn't know how, how to resolve them I, I didn't know what they were and right. every time <coughs> any of them crossed my mind it just made me scared again or ashamed again
0: and in avoiding facing the shame and fear like Freud is suggesting, it made it worse
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: and more difficult and they got bigger and bigger and scarier and <clears> scarier
1: yeah the original ones did and then I added new ones mm-hmm. so the, the behaviors that I wound up doing, Things like dishonesty just added more shame. And now I have new, completely new circumstances that I'm now ashamed of in an attempt to avoid the original shameful.
0: So one way that people talk about codependency showing up is as perfectionism. That's a thread that goes through the codependency literature that, Mm -hmm. that a number of people, an aspect of their codependency is perfectionism. So in, in that case, again, their shame and fear that they're carrying from, from childhood is showing up in this kind of excessive need to control their environment mm. and be perfect in everything that they do. Yeah. And you can see that kind of as this fear of fear, which we've talked about, fear of fear, fear of shame, like mm-hmm. being unwilling or unable or not feeling ready to face any amount of fear or shame, such that even just picking a restaurant to have dinner at is this loaded experience and you'll see someone maybe who's a perfectionist spend hours trying to choose exactly the right restaurant because mm-hmm. what happens if they choose the wrong restaurant they may feel some amount of shame
1: mm-hmm, right failure something failure right and and then even and they can
0: they, they can't they can't deal with
1: it and then even then once the, once at the chosen restaurant choosing the right meal. Mm -hmm. Like, here's another round two, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, you know, I had elements of that. You did. Yeah.
0: What seems, in retrospect, kind of excessive planning.
1: Yes, exactly. So that's, you know, maybe not necessarily... I wouldn't describe it as perfectionism, but mm-hmm. it's a similar thing. It's mm-hmm. the same kind of mechanism. I, I overplanned lots of things throughout my life. I mean, to the point of where I wasn't actually doing the thing I was planning. Like I tried to have a music career at one point and but I spent years just researching how to do it right. And then once I finally did it, oops, I didn't actually want to do this. You know, so that, that can go for so many things. Yeah, but I also overplanned with the restaurant thing, like you're talking about too. Mm-hmm. So I, I just couldn't imagine being able to deal with just yeah choosing the wrong restaurant like i if if i felt as though i had some some way to control something in this future experience i was going to go out of my way to make sure that i there was no way that that was going to go wrong you know i'm going to look at every restaurant on Yelp or whatever it is and just make sure it's the absolute best for every meal
0: and one reason i brought up that example because people might have the question what well, what does that look like being ready to face shame or fear. So what that might look like, and that's actually an example, you have given up that Mm -hmm. excessive planning. You are now much more willing to just go to a restaurant. (laughs) And it may not be the perfect restaurant, and it may actually go poorly, but just not doing that excessive planning, you are taking on a little bit of fear that things might go wrong. And if things do go wrong, recognizing maybe you're feeling a little bit of shame but then learning to release yourself from that shame because that's not an actual shameful event
1: right yeah and then each time i deal with it that way mm-hmm. i start to build this momentum and trust in myself that mm-hmm. i can actually deal with it when things don't go exactly perfectly i mean we've had times where we go to a restaurant and it's not even open oops we forgot to check that it was open fine it's <laughs> just true. go somewhere else yes. you know it's it's not the end of the world yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But that would be the kind of thing that just would send me over. So, part of the thing is, my capacity to handle it was also affected by the fact that I was carrying so much. So, I was just at my edge at all times because I didn't deal with any of the ones that already came my way and I was just carrying those. And then, any literal shame or fear that came on, it was just like, this is too much. I can't. And then I just keep trying to shove it somewhere wherever it could fit, you know?
0: And we talked about learning to manage your emotions, particularly shame and fear. In season two, I think the episode's called Emotional Matured. Uh, maybe we'll link to that one in the show notes. Because we recognize uh, you because you went through it and I because I witnessed it. This is really tough. <laughs> yeah. These are very difficult emotions. They're this Very is painful emotions. Very painful emotions. Um, and so being ready to face them, that can be hard to get there for sure.
1: Yeah, and that's what I felt myself doing, like also what we talked about in season 2, where even though I didn't really know much about any of this stuff yet, I felt like I was doing the right thing by facing it. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's just I feel like I need to do this. Now on hindsight, I'm really glad I did that because was I had crit- to. That was the only way to to get through any of this stuff. So
0: right, it was a it was a critical step. But why that second part's included, asking for help from others when necessary. It's included because it is so difficult. And you did that as well there would be times where we'd be talking about an event in your past or in our past that was causing you shame. Mm-hmm. And and you would say that you'd say, I'm struggling here. I, you know, I need a moment or I need some help.
1: Yeah. I'm naming it not just for myself, but for you too. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, just to make it clear because it is difficult. Yeah. When facing shame, especially before I got more used to it, uh, it was triggering. So mm-hmm. I, I went into that kind of freeze mode, Whenever I felt shame, and it's hard just to have a conversation, or
0: and most of what you were carrying shame about, and most of what you were carrying fear for, was not real, was not things that you should be ashamed about, and were not was not things that you needed to be afraid of. Right, so, false signals. Mm-hmm. So asking for help to manage that shame and fear, I think made a difference because a lot of it was helping you talk through and think through. ways in which those were false signals as you say Mm -hmm.
1: yeah so i had to get used to being able to feel it one thing so that moving forward when whenever something caused fear or shame in me i would deal with it appropriately being look for the signal because that's what they are that's Mm -hmm. as we've said many times now that our emotions are a signal so if i'm afraid what am i afraid of just be able to actually look at that and not go "Uh oh i'm afraid i need to figure out some way to avoid this fear Mm -hmm. or the shame oh no, I don't want to feel this, so I had to figure out a way to avoid it. It's just listen to it, even though it's hard.
0: And ask for help if, if if you're not sure that you're getting the right signal.
1: Yeah, so another big thing that I had to use to be able to get used to the shame and fear for was rewriting my stories like we've talked about. So I had to go back and do all this work to re-examine my past, re-examine my relationships, um, things I did how that those things affected other people. Kind of like we talked about in during these, the first five steps, I had to be ready for the fear and the shame that came from thinking about those things so that I could successfully get to the truth of each of those things.
0: And speaking of getting to the truth, step seven.
1: So step seven is I searched for the root causes of all my maladaptive behavior patterns and worked on strategies for healing from the effects of those causes.
0: So part of this is even when we got the codependency framework, you didn't just say like, oh, I, I'm codependent. Yeah. That's the explanation. <laughs>
1: right, right. Yeah, one of the things I mentioned at the beginning of the previous episode where we started on this, these steps was that I think it's more helpful to not see codependency is something you heal from so're i'm not healing from the codependency the codependency is the result of the thing that I need to heal from yeah even behaviors. though we call
0: a healing codependency
1: we do oh, use that, I know that's we do use that language but yeah yeah we have but uh but really technically I, for me I had to heal from what was at the root which was trauma because trauma is what got encoded in my body and the codependent behaviors were my response to that encoded trauma so I had to heal the trauma to be able to address the behaviors.
0: Behaviors came about as defense mechanisms against the trauma you were experiencing. Mm-hmm. And in your case, it was kind of chronic, repeated trauma. And then those behaviors became habitual and in that way, maladaptive, because then you were applying them to situations where they didn't work. They were not helping you.
1: They weren't necessary. And actually, they had the opposite effect. They the opposite way and wound effect. up getting me trapped. So I was suspended in this kind of state as if that childhood friend was still had control over me. And then I just assumed pretty much everybody I came in contact with was that guy.
0: Right. In some cases, they were.
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: And when they were, you got stuck in those relationships.
1: Doing the exact same things I mm-hmm. did to keep myself safe with that guy when I was seven years old.
0: There's a really good book on trauma. I'm not sure if we've mentioned it. Maybe we have The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, I think we did. We'll link it again in the show notes if we haven't. But it, it's an excellent book about trauma and how it happens and, and the ways that it reverberates throughout your body and throughout your life if it's if it's not addressed. And there's a part in it where the author talks about the ways in which often Behaviors that we see as problematic, for instance, addictions, you know, addictions to food kind of a- expressed as, as, as obesity or addictions to alcohol might actually be strategies for coping with the unhealed trauma so that mm-hmm. they themselves are not the problem again. They are the solution. Mm-hmm. They're a bad solution yes, <laughs> often. Exactly. I mean, an unsustainable solution, but they are the solution the person has for dealing with this unhealed trauma, and that's in some ways your codependent behaviors as well, they were solutions to unhealed traumas. There's no use to simply remove those behaviors if the trauma is still unhealed. Much like you stopped drinking, that was a coping mechanism for dealing with trauma and stress and abuse. You stopped drinking, and it didn't solve the problem.
1: Yeah, it didn't solve what caused me to drink too much. Fine, I could just continue to not drink, but so what? Like, what what did I help? there Mm -hmm. some of these behaviors obviously i want to not have the codependent behaviors but if i'm not replacing it with anything or i'm not reprogramming the source cause of it then it'll probably just come out some some other way
0: yeah i mean just go back to my favorite freud quote now (laughs) the emotions the fear and the shame are still unexpressed and undealt with and they're going to come forth later whether that's as codependent behaviors or alcohol abuse or
1: yeah, I mean I've experienced it myself, but mm-hmm. I've seen this before and other people too. Where it's like, oh, okay, I'm gonna stop drinking. Well, now I'm gonna overeat. You know, it's there's sure. there's gonna be some, just find something else, find some other vice, and it's really not much different. Maybe it's healthier somehow or something, but it's still an obsession. It's still you're still searching for some way to heal your thing that you're not addressing.
0: To go back to what I was saying about perfectionism and codependency can come out as perfectionism. Usually perfectionism is not a pathway to a satisfying and contented life. Mm -hmm. It seems to reflect a lot of ongoing anxiety and distress.
1: All right. So the next step then is eight. I made a list of all my wants, needs, desires, values, and expectations for my life and for my relationships.
0: I I don't know if we've told this story before. It's kind of a funny story. We find it funny now anyway. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Early in our relationship when I was learning a lot more about your relationship with Jay, including witnessing some of that dynamic, and you were doing that balancing act where you were trying to make it clear that she was not a good partner, but also not wanting to admit that it was a terrible relationship. Yeah. So that was confusing to me as someone entering in a relationship with you, and I suggested that maybe it would be a good idea if we talked about what each of us expected as a bare kind of bare minimum from the people who were in our lives, especially the people that we were engaged in intimate relationships with. And so you went off as you often did and wrote wrote it out. Yeah. (laughs) um, And then read it to me. And I said, you know, something to the effect of, okay, these are your expectations, but it doesn't sound like you had any of that in your relationship with Jay, but you're saying that relationship what's fine
1: these are your bare minimum expectations yet yeah, you didn't have so it.
0: <laughs> right and then and then when and then you responded with yeah.
1: i said like well so, this, this this is just aspirational though yeah
0: well these are this is ideal this ideal. is what i want right i would like and, and i was like, okay i mean it's good to have an ideal but i'm asking what's your walk away point <laughs> like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the bare minimum Someone has to treat me like this. Like, I won't accept these kind of behaviors. And this goes back, maybe we brought this up in the boundary discussion because it's more kind of about boundaries. But yeah, so it turns out, I guess, that you never thought about
1: that. No, I never actually thought about it because enough of me knew that it was just an awful relationship and I was constantly having to write stories to rationalize my being there. And this simple question of you asking this was just, yeah, my response was just so bizarre, right? I mean, it makes sense that I would... Actually, if I were to apply thought to it, I would have to come up with something. I can't say, you know, because <laughs> I, I, to, I, I just literally take whatever got I get <laughs> from that relationship with yeah. Jay. Or,
0: so, I mean, now, now I even know more from the relationship with R.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, not you, only did I not get anything from the, I got the opposite. I got mm-hmm. nothing but bad things mm-hmm. from those relationships. So if I were to apply any expectations at all, right off the bat, anyone I could say is already broken. So... Yeah, it forced me to go like, well, crap, does that mean I, I just completely had none? Yeah, I didn't. I, but I, I couldn't think about that when you asked me this question. Mm-hmm. So then that's why I just kind of backpedal and go, oh, wow, there's just ideal world or whatever, you know. But.
0: As we started moving through this process, though, and you started journaling and reflecting, you realized that it had felt unsafe for most of your life going back to your childhood, having expectations, mm-hmm. let alone wants needs and desires so you just got used to not having them yeah. not thinking
1: about not even them. thinking about them yeah so if if for whatever reason i was on my own but i never really was i don't think i've you know even like a couple of times i lived by myself but i never felt like i was truly an agent i always felt like i had to answer to something or someone or other people or mm-hmm. something yeah i was never an individual yeah it was too risky for me to have wants needs and desires so i had to line myself up as quickly as possible to whoever came along and if that was someone terrible, oops, now I'm blinding myself up with something terrible, someone terrible. And this again
0: is illustrates this, how narcissism and codependency seem to be these the two sides of the same coin, right? Mm-hmm. So we have narcissists who have this deep sense of entitlement that all their needs and wants and desires and expectations be given to them and be met. And then you have a codependent person who does not feel entitled to even have wants, needs, yes. and desires and expectations. Right.
1: So it's pretty simple formula there. Right.
0: That's a scary combination. Yeah.
1: So I need, I need to make, because I needed to know who I was. I needed to know what the starting point was here. How can I rewrite these stories and get self-awareness if I don't even know who I am to begin with? What are my values? So yeah, I mean, I let, wrote out a few lists throughout this. Like I started with a core values one at the very beginning of all this research, just to make sure I understood what it is I wanted to line myself up with before I started figuring out what my behaviors were. Um, And then later kind of did a complete list of one's needs and expectations. Once I started to get a little bit more of a grasp of what my emotions were and what love felt like and Mm -hmm. things like that.
0: Then step nine.
1: So step nine, using that list, I made an honest attempt to look at the big picture of my life to see which of my actions and which of my relationships were or weren't serving my well-being.
0: Right. So what kind of person did you want to be and what types of people did you want in your life? Which is kind of what I I think was trying to get at in that early yeah. question was, what kind of relationships do you want? And right. what, are, what are you What do you expect really? out of this patient? Mm-hmm. And you do that now. You've talked about the way you do that now with your family and with your job and with your friends. And, and mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's certain relationships that I decide, okay, obviously there are ones that now I wouldn't even dream of getting into to mm-hmm. begin with. I hope I feel as though it wouldn't happen at this point. But if somehow say a coworker or something like that comes along and I really kind of have no choice, I'm sort of just deciding how I respond mm-hmm. to that person. Cuz you can
0: still remove yourself from them as much as possible. Yeah. Even yeah. even within a professional space.
1: But or like or like my family, I want my family to be a part of my life. Their behaviors aren't always what I would consider to be great behaviors, but I have expectations. I understand who they are as individuals. And I understand who I am.
0: And that leads into step 10.
1: Yeah. So step 10 is I continue to cultivate my ability to recognize what power I have and how I can apply that power to make changes I need to make or accept things I can't change.
0: So this sounds similar to the serenity prayer. Yeah. We, we had a whole episode on that, which is kind of a discussion of this of this step.
1: Mm-hmm. It's ba- basically baking the serenity prayer into the steps, It's its own step. And this is a throwback to step one, being that I recognize that I have power.
0: And you need to use it effectively. And I need to, I need to figure out how to use it,
1: when Und- when it's appropriate and when it's, you know, or when I don't have power. Right,
0: understand its limits.
1: And then step 11 is I continue to watch how I use my language and for the motivations behind my initial reactions to situations or other people's behaviors. And when they resemble what I understand as codependency, promptly correct myself. So this is something that is an ongoing thing and probably will be an ongoing thing for a very long time uh but the language things like language is very important it's kind of funny but as we've said before i abuse the word we you know just kind of whenever it's convenient to like relieve some of the fear i guess of making a decision or or taking responsibility for something mm-hmm. you know i just slap a we on it and it's like oh we liked that or something and we were talking about you know we had a jar actually we, it was a well i don't know if it was a jar it was like a bowl or something but with uh, little beans, right. and, and I would put a, a bean in a jar every time I said "we" in a, an appropriate way, and and then there was kind of like different levels. Certain "we's" were even worse. oh, that's a three bean "we."
0: I think the yeah the the highest level was reserved for when you used "we" to represent, say, a shared mental state. We think this, yeah, or we like this. And you got it wrong. <laughs> oh,
1: sure. Right. <laughs>
0: I didn't think that. And I didn't yeah, like that. <laughs> right, right. Right. So, yeah, like two would be, yeah, maybe say we think or we like and get it right. But then three right. would be Actually <laughs> saying. Actually getting it wrong. Getting yeah. it wrong. So you're not only bringing me in unnecessarily because you can just express your own thoughts and likes and desires but you were bringing me in when I didn't even belong in there because yeah. I was not part of the team that liked that thing. Yeah, <laughs> that
1: or this. like doing something, like we did this. Remember when we did this? Well, you did that.
0: Right, yeah. So that would be wrong too, I, was I guess. was nearby. That, <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty wrong. Yeah. Uh, you know, but we have both used this the word we multiple times during this, the last few minutes. It's yeah. not like it's always inappropriate. No. But, but it was... It, se- it seemed, there were absolutely times where it seemed a remnant of your codependent habits. yeah. And we've talked about all the way through, codependency involves habitual behaviors, behaviors that had been habituated over years. That's mm-hmm. so really, that's hard to break. It's hard to break any kind of habit.
1: Yeah. And it may sound benign in the grand scheme of things, Uh, language, well, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. semantics or whatever, but really it's important because it there's something behind it. You know, it's not just straight up. You know, when I'm saying that, there is some fear behind it. Right. So I want to make sure I recognize that. I have to be conscious of that. And so when I am... Every time I make myself conscious of it, you help by making me conscious of it. It, It's huge. It, it's slowly reconditioning myself. So it's called classical conditioning where where I'm kind of coming up with a new replacement habit in place of it. So if every time I say an inappropriate we, I become conscious of it and I say, oop, I... Mm-hmm. i did this right there we go i'm, I'm trying to like just mm, hammer that in to mm-hmm. my head so maybe next time if there's like a moment of fear in my head i'm still gonna say i i'm gonna well, i'm gonna recognize it i'm gonna just go through it and, and I,
0: eventually that becomes habitual yeah
1: that becomes a new habit
0: you get used to talking about yourself in the first person
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and then like i said it's more about it's it there's more to it than just language so just i find it helpful to keep that in mind
0: Oh, I think absolutely. It it became a window into talking about what you were feeling when you were making those statements. Yeah, right. And the the lingering habitual fear that you had from expressing wants, needs, and desires or deciding to do something or having an opinion about something that might be controversial.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. You may not like my opinion, but I have to be okay with that. All right. And then finally, number 12. Having gained the self-awareness and wisdom that has come from taking these steps, I commit to making all of these new behaviors my habitual behaviors. So that that just takes what we were talking about in the previous one just a little bit further. It's kind of like trying to, just sinking into the feelings of power, trust, individuality, emotional connectedness, and then just this overall self-awareness that I've now gained. And then just kind of getting this momentum and trust in myself from time and time again, behaving in this new way. The new, be- the new replacement habitual behaviors. Each time I find myself doing one correctly out of the gate and not having to correct myself, like ah, there we go. There's a little bit of like momentum, and it just keeps building exponentially.
0: And like we said uh, last episode, you know, it's not that these steps are in exact order or something, yeah. but they kind of are. Roughly represent your journey through through mm-hmm. this process, and but sometimes you go back to. Certain ones and just kind of get a, a re-up on, on any any particular step, but you but you haven't ever seemed to need to go back all the way to the beginning.
1: The very beginning being step one. Yes. I think I have. I think I've oh, had really? to do that too. Sure. I think there's times where I need a little help recognizing that I'm powerful. I th- right because yeah, yeah that's true. Feelings of powerlessness, it pops up in kind of small ways, not mm-hmm. in, in the grand ways it used to. But yeah, on a, an average week or something, there may be a couple of moments where one of my is in more than just language, but it may be language based, where it's just like, wow, that was a very powerless statement. Yeah, I mean, the universe is out to get me powerlessness is, is a thing that I still slip into sometimes, which we didn't actually talk about. And we were, we, we regretted not talking about that. And
0: that ca- came up recently. We're trying to sell our house. And you have a friend who has sold many houses, and she seems to always time it right. And mm-hmm have the right house and they always sell super quickly and mm-hmm. you brought her up because ours hasn't didn't sell ours hasn't sold immediately and and you'd brought her up before actually when you had sold previous houses this is clearly yeah. something that really sticking with you and i was kind of what does it matter how quickly her house right. sells it has nothing to do with us yeah. going. but it was this, this kind of because her house sold the universe was out to get you yeah like, like you your house should be able to sell that mm-hmm. quickly and why didn't you get it? And of course, you didn't get it for lots of reasons. I mean, yeah. some of which you had control over and some of which you don't, but you just kind of just defaulted into this just happens to me.
1: Yeah. And, and, and it and we, so that led us into a discussion about this kind of other form of resentment, like kind of resentment towards the universe, um, but really resentment that the, you're powerless over the, of the whole universe. Mm-hmm. and, Things happen, and then and then it just gets overblown. Like, oh well, that's that's my luck, you know. That's this is this is what happens so, to there's me. There's nothing I can do, right? W- I which can even do at
0: all. even with selling our house, this yeah, yeah if we listed it lower. We could have sold it quicker, or if we listed it a different time. And we we there are decisions that we made yeah that have to do with how fast or, or slow it's going to sell. Mm-hmm. Like their decisions your friend made.
1: Yeah, and so when the something isn't happening, say I'm not selling the house quickly enough, it's not that difficult to just step back and look at the the reasons and and mm-hmm. to say like oh well what do i have control over and what i don't you know a lot of it i don't and a lot of it i do like you just said the fact that we chose to sell it when we did it couldn't be a factor there's a lot of factors but just by going ah you know the universe doesn't want me to sell this house
0: so yes uh, i guess it's true you do go back even to step one i guess because you are getting used to what it feels like to move through the world as as an autonomous powerful person so yeah, it makes sense that there would still be times where where you don't feel that I guess what I was trying to bring up is that it it doesn't seem to be as difficult it's yeah. not as emotionally fraught right having gone through these steps mm-hmm. you can go back and address them and it's it's not terrifying anymore
1: right yeah it doesn't take much to get me back on track. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, we had we had like a 10-minute conversation. And not only was I back on track, I had a, a much more thorough understanding of the whole situation.
0: So you fall off the wagon sometimes, but you get right back on the horse. Yeah. I want to mix our, our metaphors yeah, Right. So there they are.
1: Yeah. Those are the 12 steps, the, the new 12 steps.
0: And by all means, if, if other people have suggestions or edits or their own steps, we, we'd love to hear about those.
1: At this point, we've decided to wrap up this season and and start in on a new set of topics that is going to be along the lines of relationships codependency and relationships yeah codependency and relationships and just elements of healthy relationships
0: and we'll start on that in a couple weeks and we hope you join us